more than ever, college students in our ministries need us. They need godly relationships and people who are bringing them into their homes and bringing them into their lives and bringing them into what's going on. Uh, We also are struggling with addiction to our phones and social media as grown adults, you know. And so that's the thing that um, I know as I've gotten older and I was still in the field, I find it incredibly fulfilling to be a part of maybe even less students' lives, but that are true and authentic and deep. And I'm allowing them into my, my home and my life. Happy New Year, listeners. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode features a conversation with John Amayo, a local missions director based out of Rochester, New York, and Deb Goodson, a team leader on campus at Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be continuing a discussion started on our internal workplace platform regarding iGen. Who are iGen students? And what are the challenges to reaching them with the gospel? And what can they teach us? Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Well, I just appreciate both of your time so much because you're the leaders, you know, of the field and of the campus ministry. And so I know how busy you are, and I appreciate that you would take time out of your schedule to talk with us about Gen Z and iGen, whatever it is that the next generation is going to identify as. And so thank you both for being here. I'm excited about this topic. And really the way that this idea came about is because on Workplace, on our internal work platform, John, you started a conversation in the team leaders group and it was all about, you called it climate change and kind of what you're seeing and feeling and experiencing as a local missions director um, in the Northeast. And so I would just love to hear how that post came about, that you started that conversation that now has 100 comments and that Deb has weighed in on so well. And so let's start out there. Just how did that post come about? Wow, that's a that's a great question. So thanks for having me on, listener uh, Sam. This is a big big deal for me. I was just listening to your uh, podcast about uh, the three wise men as I was painting my kitchen cabinets over Easter. So, or not Easter, Christmas. Easter would have been a long time ago. Anyway, uh, so it was great. It was awesome. And uh, so I'm a big fan before I was on the show already. So anyway, uh, but yeah, that that post came about. Just as I wanted to get stuff out of my head, basically, there was no like thought of like this is going to become some big thing. It just was after the annual leadership gathering that we have uh, in Dallas. I'd been talking to some of our team leaders, and uh, just it was just I needed to get thoughts out of my head and onto some paper. And so I was sitting on the couch. Uh, one morning, and I just started writing on a on some paper, and my wife looks over at me, and I think she could see what was going on. She knows I get into these like kind of creative states sometimes, and uh, she said it's kind of like when you make spaghetti sauce, uh, everything just kind of simmers for a while, and then it's finally ready to be be done. And so that was just kind of the conclusion of that. It's not because I'm some sort of expert in the field. Uh, I am just learning along with everybody else. Um, so really I'm just a, a learner, just trying to learn with everybody. I've been really shaped not only by, by the stuff that I've read, but by the students who I'm interacting with and by the great leaders that we have, uh, leading here in our state. Uh, they're doing a lot of hard work and, and they're sharing with me things and, um, they're inspiring me to think deeper about things. So if anything, what I wrote was really a synopsis of what they're telling me uh, along with some of the stuff that I've observed. So, Well, that's really encouraging that you're, it's a result of what you're hearing from the field. I love that. And one of those from the field is with us. It's Deb Goodson. Deb, you are one of the team leaders on the Berkeley campus. So we have both coasts represented on this call. I love that. We've got New York and we've got Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay area. So, Deb, what was it about John's post 
that made you weigh in with your excellent comments? Yeah, well, I loved how succinct his seven points were. And I I definitely think that we've been talking more about Gen Z in the last year or so, but not enough as a campus ministry. And so various things that had been um had been in you know in conversation whether that be at the ALG or just amongst other colleagues, I think we're good. But I love just how you know um, how great the list was because I, I I immediately was like, oh my gosh, these these are the things, these are the the exact conversations we need to be talking about, the exact problems we need to be solving. And actually, before the reorg, um, the West Coast MCLs and the DSW, we were talking about Gen Z, Gen Z. And actually, we're writing a bit on, okay, well, what do we need to do differently? And is the reorg helping us move in that direction? Is it, you know, kind of ignoring some of these things? Is it not quite aware yet of where we might be going? And that was, I guess, you know, the spring of 2017 or so. And now as we're in 2019, it's like, okay, nothing, um, this is where we are. Like nothing that we were wondering about, you know, a couple of years ago has shifted in a more, you know, positive or easy direction. It's only gotten harder and harder, in my opinion. So I just I just love that the list was distinct and that we could then dive into each of those categories specifically and start figuring out, okay, what do we need to do differently? How do we need to think about this generation differently? And what are we doing that's actually not working, that we need to adjust and change and maybe um, do some more research on, do some more reading on, do some more learning and prototyping on? So. So let's just recap for those of us maybe who haven't seen the workplace conversation. John presented seven unique barriers that we're facing with Gen Z. And here's what they are. Number one, declining social ability. Number two, politicization. I can't say that. Politicization of Christianity. Hopefully you know what I meant there. Three, changing views on sexuality. Four, LGBTQ rights and celebration has been interpreted as a civil rights issue for intense stress, five, pervasive loneliness, six, immediate information access, seven, constant marketing. So there's a lot there, isn't there? And some of this we know because there's been a lot of research already done and articles and things out there in TED Talks, and some of those were linked in the comments, and I read them all, and they were so helpful. Um, but Deb, there was something you said in the comments that I can't stop thinking about, and I'm going to quote. You said, if we as the campus ministry want to survive and be relevant, we need to adjust our methods, messaging, and strategies. And, John, you said we may have to throw out all of our old paradigms. So those two statements, they just feel really heavy and really dramatic. So I wondered if one or both of you, I hope, can speak to those. What are those old paradigms? How do we stay relevant and where do we adjust our methods, messaging, and strategies? I, I, I'm actually not going to answer it. So you can, you can give your good answer. I'm going to give kind of a, a meta narrative for a little bit bigger 30,000 foot picture of it. Um, because I think there's a lot of specifics we could be thinking about, but, but, uh, I'm, I'm talking to you from Rochester, New York, uh, which is formerly the home of uh, Kodak. Um, one of the, you know, I, I just happened to see this online yesterday. I was scrolling through online and I saw this video of Kodak about Kodak. In 1996, Kodak was the fifth largest company uh, traded in the world, the fifth largest. Now they're basically unheard of. And not a lot of people know this, but Kodak was one of the people who was one of the companies who first formulated digital technology. They patented it, but they sat on that digital technology because the film business was bringing them so much money that they just figured we're just going to sit on this digital thing. It's never really going to become a thing. We're only going to focus on film. In 1996, they actually started to make some adjustments, but it was by that point too late. Then they hedged their bets on, oh, everybody's going to want to print all their photos. They hedged everything on that. And so they said, hey, we're going to go all in on printing. 
And that didn't pan out either. And so you're left with this company that was once known for innovation and once known for, for being on the cutting edge in their industry and really a worldwide leader was suddenly uh, just did not have any market share and was just kind of what used to be a Kodak moment. People don't even know that term anymore. So um, I, I sometimes get concerned that sometimes we can, as an organization, rest on our laurels from the past and we can think, wow, what we've done in the past is so significant. Let's just keep on cranking that out again and again and again. But I think what sometimes we fail to realize is that the things that have worked in the past don't necessarily mean that those things are going to work in the future. And um, so that's some of the background to why I was, why I have some of those feelings, I think, why they, why they start to come up. Um, there's a long list probably of, of what that could look like. I'll let Deb talk about the specifics because uh, – She's really, really smart. I learned that from the post. I've never met Deb before this call, but uh, she's really, really smart. So everybody should listen to her. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I, um, I'm i a big proponent of summer missions. I have been on, I don't know, 12 or so, um, maybe a little bit less. But I would say that many of our staff and interns have joined with us because of U.S. summer missions. And many go on stint even for a year and then might head off. But I think we were, we've relied on long summer missions, um, for good reason, uh, to see our numbers for volunteers, interns, and staff continue to grow. I would say though that having led Ocean City in 2007 and then having led it again in 2017, there is a radical difference in the number of applications the number of acceptances, students who, you know, back in 2007, uh, you, the project would be full by December 10th, the first deadline. Literally in 2017 and then again last year in 2018, we were still not full even the day before the project started. Our mission started, sorry, and now I guess it's even just mission. And we had students who literally pulled out on the day they were supposed to come. So even just that behavior of application, the behavior of, you know, accepting people and back 10 years ago, oh, yes, I'm totally coming. Thanks for accepting me. This, or 2017, I remember for women, I had 150 applications. I accepted all one, and that was due to a self-harm question. And so out of the 150, I accepted all of them. 50 came. One-third of them that I accepted actually showed up. And that's concerning, you know, and, and even the, I would say, caliber of students is a little bit different because, you know, the level of leadership, competency, and, and this goes to John's post, you know, even social ability, leadership now in college and in the future, um, the types of students who are choosing to go, and this is for long-term missions, so although it's different is a little bit different than it was 10 and I'm assuming 20 years ago. And so I think that is, um, that's changing a bit in regards to, okay, what's the output of then bouncing back a few, few years, I guess, in regards to who's going to intern with us and come on staff with us. So I think that's one strategy that I, I know people are already talking about, but to me, the difference in 10 years is so stark that we better be thinking a lot about what that means, mm-hmm. not necessarily with just some remissions. So I know people are thinking already hard on that, but with regards to recruiting and um, being prepared possibly for our numbers on staff and, and interns to, to decline. I think we have such a high number compared to what it was. I have heard 25 years ago with us staff that we feel great with where we're at and, and maybe we're going back down just to a normal level, you know, so to speak. And so we should, you know, be thinking through those ramifications. So that's one. I think another would be um, with regards to loneliness, you know, stress, overwhelm. I would say the emotional ability of our students is, is a lot lower and their needs are a lot higher. And so I think what has been hard for me at times with regards to, intense student-led ministries. Um, you know, we're leading at the number one public school in the country, and there's other problems there with regards mm. to stress and people being extremely busy and planning their next 40 years of their lives, grad school, you know, careers and internships. 
but I would even say that the ability of them to go out and leave, let alone lead another campus or whatever, I just don't see it where I am. And so I hear that this happens from time to time, and I, I want to be, you know, praising the Lord that there are students who have the ability and desire to lead at the level that we want them to. But I would say that I don't experience that firsthand to the degree that what we're hoping and praying for the campus minister to be at by 2020. And so that's where I'm a bit skeptical of are we putting a lot of eggs into the basket? I think globally, we we hear a lot of stories from Brazil and the Philippines, South Asia, and those are in places that uh, Christianity is strong. It's not just crew that's strong there. It's actually all of Christianity. Um, you know, the gospel has moved and the church has moved to the global south, including Brazil and South Asia, both of those continents, right? And so there's a sense that we're using the uh, strength of what's going on around the world to dictate our strategy here in the U.S. But what we do here doesn't work in Western Europe. So what goes happens in South America and South Asia may not work in America, right? It's where the gospel has shifted over the course of, you know, years. And so I, I wonder those strategies um, are maybe not transferring in the way that we hope they will uh, in at least the United States. So I think that's one. Um, I think too, I, I would be hesitant to say, uh, too much on this, uh, but I think the politicization, uh, you know, the evangelical right, um, even though the whole conversation with race, all of that, as well as sexuality, those are huge conversations. I don't know. It's complicated. And, um, these issues are not going to be solved overnight. And I think we're a long way from figuring out what really to do about them. So one of the things you mentioned was summer missions and how attendance is down and commitment is down, even showing up if you said you're going to show up. I know that there's that has been a reality with the Winter Conference some too. And I saw the Winter Conference come up as a subject in this post. Um, leaders were saying that all getaway numbers are up, but maybe that winter conference attendance is down. And I know that's maybe that I don't know if that's true of every campus in the whole country, but I know that at least in some places that is true. And so I wondered, there was another quote in the post, there's a natural distrust for large organizations. And John, it reminded me of what you were saying in the post about um, farms versus factories or even family versus factories and how the needs of the student are just changing. What they want is more of an intimate family type feel. And you even connected it to the Bible and some of the agricultural metaphors that are used there. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I, I just have seen that over and over again, and, and especially over the last couple of years, research is just even showing this, that, that students don't have the desires that that we kind of took for granted, I think, as an organization before to be part of an organization that is big. Um, what they really care most about, and it makes sense. I mean, if you look at their lives that are, are very stressed, they're very lonely, they're very isolated. They're very busy. Um, if you look at the context of their life, you go, well, it makes sense. What they really care about, what their felt needs are in this moment is to be part of uh, an environment where people are, are loving, where people are caring, where there's true community. And um, that to them is a higher value than um, being part of an organization. So, I just think that that's a real paradigm shift for some of us in, in regards to even how we think about conferences. I think the way we've kind of promoted conferences in the past has been, oh, it's going to be huge. You're going to love it. It's going to be really high energy. And students are like, yeah, well, I can get that, you know, in a million other places right now. What they can't get in a million other places are people who are talking about substantive things in their life one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, they can't get that true community that, that, that they desire. And so um, I think the future of conferences might not be bigger. 
the future of conferences might be smaller and more intimate, and that might allow us to reach more people. So we may have to dramatically rethink the way that we even do things like that. Uh, you know, I've gone on spring break trips with plenty of students, and uh, last year I went to Houston for relief work, and I, I just had this feeling at the end of it, um, big break has always been, I think, one of the best things that crew does um, because, and, and Houston had this too, that's why I bring them both up, because what you had is you had a combination of mission and you had an uh, intense community during that time, and you just had this sense of we're in this together. And people really who we had go with us, almost every year we would have students that ended up trusting Christ at Big Break. Um, and it was just a highlight for me to be able to go with them. And Houston was very similar last year in terms of the kind of community that's built. And I think those are the things that students look back on and they go, that's what I want, that's what I desire, that's what I want to be a part of. Um, so it frames the way we even talk about our conferences and the things that we're doing, too. So, I think, too, with that, I, I think that social responsibility that came with Harvey, as well as all that's going on with Soldiers of Hope, like we're taking a mm. group of students to Cuba with Soldiers of Hope, those are not our typical, you know, spring breaks, you know, mission opportunities from the past. Those are a little bit different. You know, it's within gospel and action, and it has a piece of, okay, we are caring about the people around us beyond simply proclamation. And so I think some of our most um, wanted opportunities, whether that be spring break or summer mission, are going to be ones that are mixing the two, mixing, mm. um, you know, basically gospel in action. And in fact, you know, my husband and I were leading a, a, a trip to Ghana this summer with IJM, and it is it's IJM and crew. It's this new partnership that has come together also through gospel in action. And there's this piece of people are like, Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go. Could I please come? And actually it's a very limited project, but there's not going to be, I think a shortage of students who want those kinds of opportunities because it's, they're smaller, you know, but they're also doing something that they think is, and, and it is meaningful, you know, into the world around them um, on top of, proclamation on top of just evangelism and campus ministry. So I think that's important for us to consider for the future. Okay, statistics are showing that with our students being more and more on their phones and in particular on social media, they're becoming more and more lonely, more and more depressed, isolated, and even suicidal. So this is alarming. And Deb, I want to circle back to something you said um, which is students need those needs met more than they ever have before. And that's what you're seeing with students on campus. And I know that there are resources that we have. Um, for instance, Tim Castile, I know, does a how to put down your phone seminar. He posted about how that was a very well-attended seminar at the Fort Worth Winter Conference. I actually went through the notes with my almost 11-year-old daughter because in about a two-month period since she got a device, she became addicted to the TikTok app, and she knew she was addicted to the TikTok app, which is basically social media, which I didn't know as a parent when I approved it. I thought she was just making videos. Well, then I found out she was making videos of slime and putting them on TikTok, and getting thousands of views and likes sometimes and check getting notifications whether she was getting these likes. And anyway, um, it really opened my eyes to how even a 10-year-old, a fifth grader with a phone can all of a sudden over a short period of time start finding their worth and whether or not they're getting likes on their slime video. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. So my question in all of that is how can we more and more meet those needs for our students who can't put their phone down, things like that? Deb? Yeah, I, I don't know how we can train a generation and even our kids, right? I have kids that age as well to – not to come to what the culture is saying. Um, there's actually a great book I'm reading out there called How to Raise 
uh, adults, I think it is. And it talks about a lot of these things and a lot more. So that's a whole separate question. But I think when you were talking, I think what it made me think of is that more than ever, college students in our ministries need us. I don't know how much they need, um, you know, a training on putting on their phones, though I think that is incredibly powerful and we should teach it across the country. But I think they need relationships. They need godly relationships and people who are bringing them into their homes and bringing them into their lives and bringing them into what's going on. Uh, as We also are struggling with addiction to our phones and social media as grown adults, you know. And so that's the thing that... Um, I know as I've gotten older and I want to still in the field, I find it incredibly fulfilling to be a part of maybe even less students' lives, but that are true and authentic and deep. And I'm allowing them into my, my home and my life. And often when I've made appointments over the years, particularly being a mom um, on staff and a team leader, you know, sometimes they're very regimented. You know, here's an hour, here's this, here's that. The times that are most valuable to students are actually the unplanned times, the times where I'm letting them, you know, into more of my normal life. And so that's, I think, the the tipping point of how to actually reach this next generation that are addicted to superficial relationships, superficial life, superficial, um, you know, moments of ecstasy, so to speak, where you get a thousand likes for a sign video, right? Like that isn't real. That isn't actually face-to-face. You're looking into each other's eyes and hearts and connecting, particularly about spiritual things. And so how we can combat it is to actually take more time with our students. And I'm not necessarily saying discipleship and training per se, because I think there is this, you know, it's all about the scope and the, you know, going deep, going far, all that stuff. And, And it's totally related and maybe a little bit separate, but whoever we do connect with, I think, to make them more meaningful, we need to go slower and take more time. I think this is true in, um, you know, a, a culture, a majority culture uh, student, but certainly if we're crossing cultures into um, minority cultures and those that, uh, people who we are not like, uh, we have to go slower. We have to invite them into our homes and our hearts and our relationships. And in those like sacred moments is I think where the gospel becomes to life and it becomes real for them and even for us. Hmm. Deb, I, I just, as I hear you talk, I just couldn't agree with you more. Just how you communicated that I think is spot on. I think what students are really hoping for right now and just they, they crave is authenticity from the people around yeah. them. They really just want people who are, who are real with their lives, who they can see this is how Jesus is lived out in your life. Um, I, I think maybe the old paradigm that we, that we're so used to, we assume that students have this at some place in their life and maybe traditionally students have, but I don't think we can take that for granted anymore. I don't think we can take for granted that students have an example of what it looks like to live for Jesus in your day-to-day life. And so um, the point that you're making there, Deb, of going slow, of inviting them into your home, of, of not just rushing through things, I think is super, super, it seems countercultural right now and everything else, but it's the way of Jesus. I mean, you're talking about the way of Jesus as you're describing that. And I think Paul, you know, as a missionary, he said, we didn't just share with you our, are, you know, we shared with you our very lives, um, as he described how he did ministry. Um, we shared with you our very lives. So, um, I think that's what the new call really is for us as well. Not just to share information with people, but to share with them our very lives. So yeah. I really love how you put that, Ben. So this begs the question though. How are we going to go deeper with our students and still get to our scope? I know that was one of the questions in the thread posed by one of our team leaders. Are, John, are, are you aware that that is a, a tension that our team leaders are feeling as our students oh. need more from us? 
how are mm-hmm. we going to get to scope when we need to care for these students? Yeah, I, I think that I, I am very aware that that's a tension. Uh, I lived it. Um, so I'm a missions director now, but I was a team leader for 11 years in Rochester. This is my first full, full year as, uh, LMD. Uh, and so I lived that for that many years and I'm still coaching people who that's their life. And my thought is this kind of the way of Jesus tends to be opposite than what we normally think. So we think the more effort I put in, the more amazing stuff is going to happen. Uh, the more people I say, go, go, go to the more people will go. Well, in reality, maybe we need to rethink a little bit of that and and think of it in terms of if I develop the the right people in depth. And yes, I, I'm not saying we don't go. Obviously, we do. But but I do that in the context of relationship with them, and I'm bringing them along the journey with me. Maybe we could trust God to do some really significant things that we didn't think he could do otherwise. And maybe he would surprise us by how much he actually did if we were to trust him. It's kind of like the same concept of Sabbath. You know, you think, well, if I work seven days a week, that's going to be more productive than working six. And God says, no, I want you to actually rest. And so I think for us, in staff life, one of the toughest things for a lot of us to do is to rest, is to say, ultimately, God has this under control. He's called me to work hard, yes, but he's also called me more than that is to follow him. Like, is my life being transformed by the gospel? Is that sinking into the core of who I am as a human being? If it's not, if if it's not filtering its way into my life, if it's not filtering its way into my marriage, you know, if I'm married, if I'm single to so the relationships around me, if it's not doing that, then it doesn't matter how many people I'm out there talking to or how many campuses I launch. That just, there's in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't matter. What Jesus is most concerned with is my heart and our hearts together. You know, um, we're in this hyper-individualized culture, and I think sometimes we forget that really Jesus is calling us uh, to be part of a family, to be part of a greater something greater than just ourselves. And I think that's actually uh, a relief to this generation. Uh, I think there's part of that, yes, that they're going to rub up against and go, I don't want this, I don't want that. They're humans like the rest of us. But I think there's a great relief in kind of like, wow, I don't have to be everything. Can you tell me how I don't have to be everything? Um, so I think there's opportunities there if we're willing to slow down enough to to listen uh, to what God might have for us. Yeah, um, I would say it is a hard tension for me um, and for our team. And Maybe I would add on a few more variables that make it harder is that, you know, we live in the Bay. And I guess it's true for you as well, John, but maybe different than some places around the country where there's a lot of antagonism to being a Christian. And so even those who are believers, you know, we see many walk away from their faith, whether that be in college or right after. And so I think that is, uh, you know, a bit of a sobering part of the ministry that we're always dealing with as well. And so there's a tendency to be like, okay, let's just try and, you know, build into who we have. And so I don't think that's the answer. I really don't. Um, but I think there is a tipping point that maybe we are crossing or about to cross or thinking about crossing and trying to get to more places. We're saying, okay, students don't need either as much or they don't you know, crave relationships where people, you know, love and care for them, particularly those who are working for an organization that we're inviting them to be a part of, whether that be in college or after. And so I just think we have to remember that students, um, they want, they want relationships with older students and with staff and interns. And we have to make sure that we have the time and even emotional availability you know, emotional capacity to care um, and not just kind of say, oh, there's something kind of going on here or there's 
a couple students that I'm checking in with here. And so we can run off over here at the expense. And in due time, I think we'll see, okay, in places where they have only gone so uh, far in terms of death or relational capacity or whatever, I'm curious where those movements will be in 2020 or 2025, you know, and there's this really fine line, this tension that I do not know. I don't know the balance of like, what are the things that, you know, yeah. Where's the the span of what's quote unquote required to stand movement flourish and grow in, you know, maturity and size. And uh, what are the other categories? I kind of forget as well as reach out. I think reaching out has always been a part of, you know, expansion campuses has always been a part of crew ever since the very beginning. Um, so it's not really that new, but I think that the pendulum has swung a bit because maybe we've gone through a season where we weren't expanding out. And so now I think it's, it's going to come back. I think it's inevitable that it'll swing back to a little bit more of quote unquote, a middle ground, that tension, that, that tightrope line where we need to be kind of in both worlds and both mentalities. So I guess I, I just think time will tell. I think time in two years and four years, you know, with um, various initiatives and, and uh, even, you know, um, objectives of each team and, and from kind of from the campus ministry on down of where we'll be with, you know, student involvement and of, um lives that are, are changed and, you know, new believers and whatnot. So I do live in a crazy part of the country. And so sometimes I can get on this kick of there's no Christians out there. And it, it actually, there aren't many out here, but there are places that there's still many, right? And students are coming from high school and ready to plug in and, and they're very eager. And so that's not our experience, but I know that still exists. And I know that there's still many places that, you know, we can lean in and utilize their eagerness to see the scope reached. So. So what are the bright spots on campus, Deb? I wonder if you could tell us an encouraging story or two about uh, what you're hopeful about from iGen. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say that the love and desire for authenticity, um, is really wonderful. And I think students want to know, um, if I'm really walking with God, if I'm actually doing, you know, what I'm preaching and saying and teaching. And so therefore I would say that I've experienced students be more open with kind of <clears throat> the uglier parts of their lives. You know, I don't know if I would call that a bright spot per se, but I think there's a real desire to kind of just let it all hang out and want to figure out faith. There are students who desperately want to grow and many of them are involved with our ministries across the country, you know? And so I think that is a bright spot because there's so much superficiality and status and image and pressure and stress you know, in the world and in their lives that were a bit of a respite for them, you know, to kind of come and find um, a place to be known and, and cared for. And um, yeah, I think just a time, a place of rest, and they don't really have that elsewhere. So I do think that, I guess the bright spot would be too, that I think even though it sounds bleak, the way that we're describing Gen Z, I think students and high school students, even the students behind them, they actually, the gospel isn't irrelevant. You know, I think that's the thing that I have only grown to believe more and more is that people want to know God in some way. I think the number of people that maybe um, want that is less, that's okay. You know, but it, it's still the sense that there are students out there that are really hungry and they are looking and searching and making sacrifices to grow. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I definitely think the gospel is still a draw 
um, for many who are not yet Christians and even for those who are baby Christians who are trying to figure out their faith in college. John, what about in the Northeast? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I really resonate with what you're saying, Deb, in terms of, hey, I realize there's not everywhere around the country is a replica of what we experience on the day in and day out. You know, I think the the coasts are kind of unique in some ways in that. But I do think that, that we kind of are an indicator in some ways of where the rest of the country might be headed. So I think it is important to kind of pay attention to what's happening on the coast and go, OK, like, let's let's see what's happening there. Um, but I, I, I am, I, I, despite the fact that I bring these things up about Gen Z, I, I think that there's a ton to be hopeful about. I mean, when I think of each of the challenges, I, I also think of potential areas for the gospel to get into people's lives in a fresh way. Um, I think, you know, when it, when it comes to politicization, politicization, I wrote it and I can't even say it, of Christianity, I think, um, you know, we, we have the opportunity to say there is a difference between the government and Jesus. His way isn't like uh, Democrat, Republican. His way is entirely different. We get to talk about Jesus as our king in a way that seems really relevant uh, to people. Um, when I think about changing views on sexuality, sure, our heart breaks for the for the pain in students' lives. I mean, I've heard students say things that I'm like, how in the world are you even sitting here right now telling me this? Um, and I've had tears roll down my face as students are telling me, you know, some of the things that they've endured. At the same time, uh, I think that brokenness allows us to to paint a picture of what Jesus really intended sexuality to be in a, in a unique way. Now that, that takes a lot of work and that's harder. That's not a one, you know, talk kind of thing, but uh, I think it, it presents us with opportunities, you know, even the stressful environment that they live under day in and day out. I think that's an opportunity to say to people, you know, Jesus doesn't talk about life, in that way, he says that he's come to give us life and have it to the full. That's what he really wants for you. Um, you know, Jesus says, take my yoke upon me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, would you like that kind of life? Could you experience that? And so I think there's a lot of opportunities. I'm really hopeful for the future. Um, I think we just have to be honest about where we're at currently. Um, I even see on the local level people doing some fantastic things. I mean, around our cohort, you know, we don't have a ton of resources, but we got people who are faithful and day in and day out. We have some of the most amazing leaders in the country who are just serving. I, I, I think about Cornell, this Ivy League school, um, that you wouldn't think, you know, wow, you know, could God work there? But, you know, like, Two, three hundred students involved. I was at their leadership meeting that had forty to fifty students at their leadership meeting, and the the staff who lead there, JW and staff and um, Nick and Christy, their their philosophy is very much what we're talking about. JW describes himself as now this is going to sound kind of weird if you don't know him, but if you know him, this is pretty spot on. He, he describes himself as a gang leader. Um, so he's he's very much a family. He creates a family atmosphere for everybody that, that people want to be a part of. And he's just, I mean, the, that whole team, so authentic. What's happening in, in Buffalo, uh, same type of deal. Deb, you know, Dan and Katie out there and what they're doing is so fantastic. But But a lot of this is emanating from places where people are being really radically honest with their lives, they're, they're creating staff teams that are radically honest, and they're doing ministry in a really authentic way. And um, yes, things are growing, but they're growing in different ways than we kind of anticipated. Uh, it looks far less regimented than you would ever, I don't think any of those situations you could look at and say, well, in, we're going to plot this out. No one ever plotted it out that way, but but that's the way it's happening anyway. So I think there's lots to be encouraged about.
for sure. Deb, it seems like from what you and John have shared that actually some of these desires that iGen has, you, you called it a love, love and desire for authenticity um, and wanting more from us, wanting relationship from us, wanting family from us, that might actually be good for us, for staff, right? I mean, we need that. And maybe that is the greatest gift that iGen students are giving to us, a call back to family and love and authenticity and depth. Yes. No, I think absolutely. I think staff, most staff, not all staff, but most staff of the campus ministry come on because they want to do that for others. You know, we've experienced it in some way, shape, or form to varying degrees. And we want to be a part of leaving a spiritual legacy in those behind us, right? And and even as an intern, if you just want to do a couple years on campus, I think the hope is that you would build relationships, you would share your heart and life, you would, um, you know, proclaim the gospel and those around in various ways, and that you would you would leave a meaningful moment, um, meaningful relationship in someone's life. And so, yes. I think it is good news. I think the the tension is maybe how do we do this well um, when the issues are very complex and confusing? How do we stay away from some issues that are not important? And how do we dig deeper and enter into those that are? You know, and even with politics, um, a friend of mine out here who was our Bay Area coach for a long time, Scott Sanders, he has a lot to say about faith and politics and, and the intersection of faith and politics. And kind of what you were saying, I think, John, of, yeah, Jesus is outside of, you know, the very uh, polarizing blue and red, Democrat, Republican, yet what is it that really we can talk about and what should our views be? And so in some ways, I don't know how many of us on staff who are on the field are really prepared to have those types of conversations, you know, with regards to sexuality and even varying views about it, you know, how do we, how do we enter in? How do we, how do we train our students even and, and teach them how to have relationships, you know, social abilities, let alone doing that with non-Christians, you know, that you're meeting or that you're trying to get to know. So I just think there's a number of aspects that our staff want to do and, and are desiring to do, um, but maybe we need to kind of rethink, okay, where are we missing in regards to the equipping for that and training for that? And then how do we say, you know, from up front, like what are our real objectives? Like what, what does it look like? What does it look like to be successful? Because I think some of our objectives and measures, you know, at Berkeley, I know they're very low. And so I can feel exhausted and spent and that I'm doing you know, kingdom work and even good things, but, you know, on other measures, they're, they're minimal. And so I'm like, oh, I'm, I, I've not done a good enough job. And I think that feeling is exhausting for me. I was going to for a long time, let alone for a young staff who already has a hard time figuring that out. So I think we need to be more clear and um, maybe more nuanced in how do we measure success you know, what, what does it look like to be successful by Friday afternoon, Friday night of a staff week? John, I wonder if you could speak to that, what Deb was sharing about measuring success. I know that as a local missions director and someone who was very recently a team leader, just like Deb, what do you tell your team leaders when they're coming to you and they're saying, I'm poured out and, and I know I have goals and I know the numbers are down, but I'm poured out. What, you know, mm. how do you encourage your team leaders? Yeah, I mean, so for me, this is more than just an intellectual concept. It's also very personal because, um, you know, I've, I've lived that myself and continue to fight it myself. You know, it's a very real thing. And I just, I, more than anything, what I coach people on, hopefully they get this from me over and over again, is just the most important thing is that you're following Jesus is that you are experiencing the life of Jesus in, in your life. Like, because if that is not happening, it doesn't matter what else happens. You are, are not what you do. You're, who you are is more important than what you do. 
Um, so I, I always want that to come out loud and clear. Now, I, I know there's also metrics that we use, and those things are good. There's nothing evil about that at all. Um, but I, I, do, I do find myself coaching more toward um, – because the people that I know who are leading are all automatically thinking, as Deb's saying, I'm not doing enough. I'm, I'm doing so – you know, in this constant sense of guilt – um, and honestly, like that's really hard, not just on you individually, that's hard on marriages and families. If, if you're in this together, it's a very difficult thing, you know? And so I also want to make sure that, that the marriages within our cohort are doing well, you know, and that's another level. I mean, you're talking depth that sometimes that's, that's not easy, but I think it's worth it. Um, to be asking those kind of questions, you know, how's our marriages doing? Um, Laura and I, you know, my wife, Laura and I, uh, we, a few years ago, several years ago now, maybe six or seven, we went to some intense marriage counseling because we were in a season where we really needed that. And, um, we found that the results of that overflowed into our family, but overflowed into our ministry in some really, really major ways because we were caught up in cycles that we didn't even realize until we had someone from the outside kind of speaking into it. So, um, anyway, uh, that's a lot. That's, that's not exactly, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but, um, it says the values of what I really want to have happen because I really believe that, that Jesus will take care of the results. If we put the first thing first, that he will take care of the results. Um, about us walking with him obediently. Um, and, you know, I think that's Mark, you know, Gothier having John 15 as kind of the verse, uh, you know, the chapter of the year, us returning to that, I think is very, very, very important in the context of what we're doing. And um, it's so easy to skip beyond that and make assumptions. Oh, yeah, we're all walking with Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, okay, now let's on to the next thing. No, uh, let's not rush that. Let's, let's pause and let's make sure that that's actually true before we rush off to the next thing. So. I mean, I think it's totally relevant. And thankfully, it sounds like what these iGen students are expecting from us are good things. It's, they're expecting authentic relationships with Jesus, with our families, and that's good for us. I mean, I think of my own daughter, you know, who gets this device and gets a taste of um, likes on a social media app and fully realizes what it's doing to her. I said, hey, do you want to go over these seminar notes with me about how to put your phone down? And she said, that's not possible. I said, what's not possible? She said, not wanting to look at your phone. I mean, I just don't think that could be true. And I said, oh, well, that's usually when you know that something has a, a hold on you is if you feel like that's impossible. I can't do that. And I said, you know, what do you think makes you look at your phone? And she said, well, sometimes I just don't know what else to do, mom. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And she said, well, what I really want to do is something with you. And how convicting is that for me, for her to say, what I really want is relationships. 